Luck on Sunday. Brought to you by Whirlpool. Bet with the world. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Very pleased that Maddie Playle from the Racing Post and Richard Hoyles, who was calling all the races for ITV, are with me this morning uh, on the day after what was something pretty extraordinary, Maddie, at Ascot. Yeah, I don't think we've seen the likes since, was it the last day of Cheltenham last year when punters were chanting, don't take me home, and we had fr old Frankie de Tory ringing out um, across Ascot, even from the TV, it was, it was obvious that it was just a really unique atmosphere. Part of me thinks it would have just been the perfect note to just end on, <laughs> um, in a way. I mean, you're not going to get much better than that, are you? Winning two, nearly three, the champion stakes, just played out so perfectly, but uh, yeah, more water to go under the bridge now. I said, Richard, yesterday, uh, this this would have been the perfect end. This would have been the perfect ending. Yeah, do, do you think, though, it increases the chances of it being the ending in the UK? Because personally, I, I do. Yeah. I, I genuinely I, think that if it had gone out like a damp squib, the incentive to come back and try and recreate something like yesterday would be hot. So I think whatever your view is, whether it went on too long um, or whether he should just have announced it on the spot, I think it does reduce the likelihood of him coming back. Why would you come back and ride a sort of 12 to 1 chance in the Coventry? Or just have a pick me up right in the July Cup. Personally, I think it, whatever you think, it decreases the chances of him coming back and riding in this country. I think that's quite an interesting point, Maddie. Do you agree? I'm not sure. I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, at the start of this year, if you'd have thought it had played out how it has, then I think you were on to something. Um, and if he has a particularly good spell out in the States, I mean, is that is that going to be a permanent move? It, it's, it doesn't seem like it'll be one final throw of the dice out there. It, he's out there for the foreseeable, it seems. So... Anything could happen. This is Frankie Dettori we're talking about. When I mean, you know the Americans set up better, is yeah. there enough to whet his appetite solely over there, just on lifestyle, just on the way a jockey's life is different to over here? I think it depends the extent to which it can sustain him beyond that initial few months in, in Santa Anita. Yeah, he can ride as a Californian-based jockey and, and switch between there and Del Mar, and the programme allows him to do that through the year. And it'll be a very pleasant lifestyle, you know, Catherine's going with him as well, and they are leaving everything behind. The kids are all set up here. They can have their, he said they're you know, renting a, a one-bed Airbnb in Pasadena for a bit. They've you know, been quite frugal about the whole thing and just almost like they're 20 again and doing it. But it's a question of how long that can sustain somebody who is... What's the licensing setup there? I'm afraid my ignorance of American racing is virtually complete. Well, you, you have, have to, to be licensed in each of the individual racing jurisdictions. You, you do, yeah. You do. Okay. You do. And, but, he, but he obviously... His agent, Ron Anderson, is one of the great agents of the, of the modern era and has looked after every major name. And he is, you know, throwing himself into it headlong and is, you know, determined to get him to the Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont mm. and everything, everything beyond. Um, and Why can, do you think it suits him so much? Um, number of reasons. Uh, I think, uh, obviously, financially, it's more beneficial. There is more... I think he actually likes being busy. So where there is... No incentive here to ride at Windsor on a Monday or Beverly on a Tuesday or Wolverhampton on a Wednesday. There is incentive for him to ride in a $50,000 claimer or a non-winners of one or a you know, starter allowance, whatever. All these races that are worth actual proper money at the same track on a day-in, day-out basis. Plus, there's a natural break in the week. So if you race, say, at Santa Anita from Wednesday to Saturday or Thursday to Sunday or whatever, you've got a natural break. So that suits him well, too. The climate, he doesn't like it when it's cold and wet and miserable. As we get older, that chimes. It does, the chord, doesn't it? I, I mean, got I, a few years yet, but the dark morning's already really, getting Really, I, I feel like that now. <laughs> but I, just, I mean, I, honestly, I don't know what you think. I've just started to feel, oh, when I get up in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to be one of those old prunes who wants to go and retire in Florida. Yeah. I don't kids, play golf. but Kids for school, you know, getting up at seven, it's yeah. dark, it's terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as well, 
So I get, I get it from a lifestyle. Yeah, and I think it's easy yeah. to forget as well that there's not that many jockeys that are really happily retired. That was one of the things about seeing Steve Cawthon, actually. Mm. Um, you know, he is one of the very few who walked away and immediately seemed to be content, whether that was mm. the case or not. You speak to him now, all about his family, you know, but I, I don't know. There's lots, of, there's lots of far worse outcomes for riders who retire without something to keep them occupied. And I think your point is an interesting one because there's been so much cynicism about the retirement mm. or non-retirement. And I, I appreciate that people want a nice, neat ending, but in this case... He is a he is a man of impulse, mm. and what he might think now might have been very different to what he was thinking two months ago, four months ago, six months ago, and eight months ago. The idea that yeah. it was all a carefully cultivated plot, I think, is probably um, doing him a disservice. I and think it just shows we don't know what's going to happen in the future, do we? I think certainly 15 months ago, off the back of Asker mm. and the turmoil that went on, sort of felt there might have been some sort of agreement, if you like, that you won't be forced into retirement this year, but the, the mantle will gradually pass over at the Gosden job. And what has been surprising is, of course, how excellent his record has been in the 12 months once that rapprochement had happened. And what is interesting is that even though he's into his sixth decade, there is something still quite wide-eyed about Frankie Dottori. And even yesterday, he was expressing surprise and amazement at the reaction he got from the crowd. Now, you were up in the commentary box. You were in a much better position to judge it than Maddie or me. So it was damp, it was grey, yeah. it was miserable. And then Dottori rode a winner. And you got the scenes, not just at the back of the stands, you're used to that. But he went down to the furlong pole, people are singing. I think in, in our time, Nick, present company accepted, only two people have transcended their way into sort of, you know, general recognition that would be John McCurry mm -hmm. and Frankie Dottori. They, for me, have always been the two people. If ever you work in racing, no one's ever heard of, you know, racing, been racing. Totally. They say, do you work, did you work with a bloke with a big side beard? Or do you know, you know, he does resonate to that degree. Um, and so whatever you think of that, then it was immediately recognisable yesterday. You, you just don't get a reaction like that for any other individual rider during my experience of racing. Whether you like him or loathe him, doesn't matter. He gets that reaction from the, the person in the street. Mm. People have often talked about the kind of crowd you get on Champions Day. And it tends to be a crowd that know what's going on. They're not just there for the beer. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and there, I think when I've been to Champions Day, there's always a very good feel-good factor about the place. You know, there was so much said about the ground and the track. And I think people can get quite grumpy about it happening in, in soft conditions but for me I, I don't buy into that at all I just think it's a, it's a great experience and they seem to build it year on year uh, and mm. I mean they couldn't have asked for more than a couple of winners for Frankie yesterday. And I guess your heavy involvement in racing coincided with the development of, of Champions Day as well so, so you didn't have that kind of nostalgia for Newmarket or probably what, what, that's what was probably the, true yeah but I mean that in a positive way rather than a a condescending one, do you know what I mean? I think it's a yeah, you've got a better perspective on it than Richard and, and I have, maybe. Yeah, I think it's built up a really good um, sort of reputation over the last couple of years and particularly attracting a wider audience. I think it's done quite well with that. You know, there was a big initiative for students, and I think actually my, my brother, who's not into racing at all, mm -hmm. he actually went last year, I think, and had a great day out. So that just proves that. It's a, it's a day where racing can resonate. As much as you say, they're a knowledgeable crowd, it can also be um, a good day out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the other point that needs making is that it does have to be a commercial success. And you cannot get the same number of people at Newmarket mm. in September, October, as you do at Ascot. You know, and in that weather, Newmarket, great though it is, would have struggled to have coped with a crowd of more than 10,000 on the Rolly Mile, you know, in terms of providing cover. And also the action is a long way away at Newmarket. You know, it's not the round course. They don't come yeah. past you twice when you're in a long-distance cup. You know, that it is the mile-and-a-half start is not just round the corner. The horses remain in sight. So I think there is more to it than just the selection of the track where the ground may be best in September, October. Maybe it won't. That's the big question, isn't it? And obviously there was quite a bit of debate in the lead-up to, to the event yesterday about which track we should or shouldn't be racing on. And I sensed yesterday quite strongly that there was a bit of disgruntlement from a few people, but they were, you know, polite enough to keep it buttoned. In terms of wishing to have raced on the main track? Yeah, or just not happy with the way the whole thing had played out. 
Yes, I thought it was slightly overblown in the sense I felt a bit sorry for Ascot in the sense they set out the criteria in advance. Once Heavy appeared in the description, they would then mm. take an independent consultation and then move it to the inside course, which meant you could really prepare for soft ground because it was either going to be soft on one course. If that got heavy, it was going to be soft on the other. The two bigger differences, I suppose, is shortening the distances of the long-distance cup and the fillies and mares by half a furlong and having a shorter run-in on the straight, which may, may have contributed to it being generally quite difficult, King of still accepted, to make ground. Um, but I did think it was slightly overblown. There's not that many courses that could produce two different tracks. No. <laughs> Unless you go to the July course at Newmarket, which wouldn't have been watered for a couple of months, that does actually give you some alternatives of saving a day. Let's not forget that to some courses that are completely underwater this morning, and we lost meetings yesterday, yet Ascot did take place, and the ground probably wasn't too bad. I can see the, the point of view from a punting perspective. You know, you're talking about one set of conditions and then it being flipped to another, and admittedly that's not an ideal scenario for anyone. But at the same time, I'm with Richard. I think it, it got overplayed, if anything, and I think ultimately it was the right decision, wasn't it? You know, the ground was very, very soft, even on that inner track. Um, and people were complaining about, you know, the, the spectacle of it. Well, um, that's, well that it could have been even worse. It's quite interesting. What was the ground on the inner track? The time suggested it wasn't that slow. The yeah. jockeys were saying it was soft and heavy. It, 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 it clearly to them was riding uncomfortably. But actually, the Times were saying it wasn't that soft, which makes me think it might have been loose on top and quite quick underneath. Well, that would make sense, given that it's not yeah. been regularly yeah, used for a while. That, that, that's true. On the round course we're talking, I mean, you know, the, we made a point of trying to work out times. Of course, the round course is difficult because you only have been on there once. Mm. Um, but Kew Gardens time, for example, was seven seconds slower than the long distance cup. And the long distance cup, even if you've added in the extra half furlong, the time of the winner would have been comparable to both of Trushan's yeah. last two wins on good to soft. So it is difficult. The only thing I would say is a bit like Hong Kong, where you can have 15 inches of rain and they'll still race. Genuinely, you can. They run a good time, but they finish strung out like washing. And a couple of the riders say, just when the ground gets a little bit loose and a little bit shifty, some horses just freeze, don't let yeah. themselves down at all. They're the ones that are beaten a furlong. Because again, you know, Paddington, uh, Chaldean, they were beaten an absolute mile. Um, and sometimes that's not just due to the yeah. conditions, I think. Ascot has an unusual substructure of its straight course to allow it to drain with a pretty high sand content. I was yeah. going to say, in Paddington's case, he was far too keen, wasn't he? And I think that's the, that's the reasoning that connection. That's the one thing you can't well. get away with, isn't it? In yeah. terms of Trusham was very mm. sweaty, didn't run too keen, but possibly had done a bit of running mentally beforehand. Well, we're going to come to Paddington in a minute in the backwash of Big Rock, but we will start with King of Steel and Frankie Dettori stealing the show in the British Champion States. And we'll take it from the outset. And this great, big, huge horse that Frankie Dettori has described as, you know, quite a, a timid horse in a way, and a, a, a sort of a sweet horse, he was saying he is, um, didn't really want a piece of the early action, Maddie, did he? And I think that's helped him, ironically, on a day where front runners dominated. One interesting point I was mentioning to Richard outside was that he um, got a third category failure for the stores again. Now, we know he had trouble with that because he didn't run in the Dante. And he was one of quite a few, actually, who didn't want to go in the stores. I think Running Lions had previous on that front. She was another art power. Um, so this is, this is quite interesting. Um, but to me, uh, he is one of the best-looking flat horses I've seen in the flesh. He's a beast, isn't he? Frankie Dettori says he's the biggest horse he's ever ridden. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think we all get carried away by winning rides. First point to make is that Via Sestina is alongside yeah. him here. So it is pace that determines where you come from. There's not a natural bias to, to front runners under any circumstances. You can go fast enough to negate that. And isn't it interesting, Richard, that we spent most of the week saying, where's the pace going to come from in this race? And well, the answer was everywhere. Yes, it seemed to. The, the blinkers seemed to light up my Prospero a little bit. This was where, down the side of the course, Point Lonsdale not travelling began to cause problems for those in his wake just a bit further back. And here, you know, I don't buy into the fact this was a great ride, if I'm honest. The way it was great was he gave the horse time to find its feet. I don't think he's been there by design no. at any point. I don't think it's a tactical decision to drop out. But what he has done on this ride and Trawlermans is he's given the horse time to find its feet. And from here on in, there was just this sort of inevitability. What's your shoes whip? Gone. It was asked beforehand by a, by a youngster. Go. There. That's it. He was asked beforehand by a youngster in the meet and greet session what you did if you lose your whip. <laughs> what did he oh say? No. That's, that's a couple of jockeys he was with and they said, you have to push harder. I think 
one of them might have been this year. I won't do this this early. Said I don't think I've done it in a major race. <laughs> well, he was also fined a thousand pounds as well for omitting the parade as well. So not yeah, not an ideal day post. for Machine Murphy. Well, uh, that would have undoubtedly be under instruction. I would have thought, and we can go on about parades and putting horses in you know in the public limelight for as long as possible on different topic, but. It Still was a great run, though, wasn't it? Great campaigning. I, mm. I was thinking to myself, interesting that they chose to put her in here, given the other options she would have had. But I guess soft ground are, are her conditions, and this is her trip. So well done for them for a, a great run, nevertheless. Yeah, so fair play. That, I, I, there are great results and great races, if you like. This was a great result. I think you would struggle to look back in 12 months' time, in all due respect, to think that it was that this division has been wide open yeah. all season. And I think it was a fantastic outcome, but I think that division has been pretty weak and pretty open. And if we're allowed to park the Frankie part of this race for a few moments, do you agree that the reassuring thing about it is that the winner is the horse with potential and he can go on and build from that and he's almost won in spite of himself? Definitely. I mean, Frankie said he hated the ground. He didn't look comfortable upon it at any stage. Great to have a three-year-old mm. there. Great to have the derby form boosted there. Are we going to see him again this Hasn't season? Hasn't he been well-trained as well? Yeah. You know, he's been developed through the season, you know, ambitiously, but circumspectly. Mm. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, when he finished second in the derby, you know, 66 to 1, I think it was, wasn't it? And, you know, you're wondering whether that is a flash in the pan. And yet we are now talking about him more loftily than August yeah. Rodan, who on the day did beat him relatively But it was rememberable hollow. how gutted all of them were. I remember thinking for a 66 to 1 second in a derby, they really felt like it was the one that got away. And you sort of thought, this is a horse who's ran a, a belting race to the outside eye, and now we've sort of seen what they've got. Um, I wonder if Coolmore will come knocking for him as the son of Wooden Bassett and a very good one. Yeah, and absolutely. And on that note, it's just worth uh, mentioning Colin and Melbourne Bryce, who have a, mm. a relatively, uh, I mean, it's not small, but relative to you know, the major breeding operations, uh, you know, a select uh, a breeding operation in Hertfordshire. They bred Wooden Bassett, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the sire of the, win the winner, and they bred Via Sistina. I mean, that's a hell of a result for them, that, that champion stakes. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Five, five grand via Sistina? Five grand via Sistina cost for wow. Stephen Becky Hillen. I mean, you know, up, up until that point, to Maddie's point, the three-year-olds had largely been eclipsed, hadn't they, until we got to this, mm. this point of the day. You know, the, the, the British ones, anyway. Well, I mean. Tahira ran well. I think Tahira did run well. Yeah, she know. glided up like a good horse, didn't she? But yes. It just freaky conditions. Down. Yeah, the, you know, obviously the, the French horses ran well generally, but... You know, our domestic horses were pretty much beaten hollow, weren't they? Uh, they were. They were. And more of that in a few moments. This is what Frankie Dottori had to say in the immediate aftermath of King of Steel's victory in the Champions Stakes. I can't believe it. Cannot believe it. I mean, the crowd got this horse over the line. I mean, I was doing my best on top, but the scream that I got was incredible. Thanks to all of you. You made me, made me win this race, and it was fantastic. I love you. You know... Hollywood script. It is. Unbelievable. Yeah. Love you. Yeah. I don't know how to feel at the moment. I don't know if it's real or... It's real. <laughs> I still don't, don't, don't feel it. It was uh, incredible. When you turn into the straight, you were going pretty well. And then what happened next? No, I struggled from the beginning. I couldn't really get him to travel. He was stumbling and, and uh, you know, then it started to come good. And I, I got behind uh, Mikel, who I thought was the horse to beat. And then I thought, well, the machine is going pretty good, so I go in his tail, and when they kicked the left wheel for a little bit, but uh, he just found the second wind, and he, he dug deep, and the crowd got behind me, and, and we got him over the line. And did you think you were going to get there? The last 50 yards, yes. <laughs> yeah. Not till then. What a feeling. <laughs> what a feeling. Uh, the crowd was... I mean, I thought the first race, the crowd was good, but this to another level, honestly. You know, it was incredible, and uh, I mean, a fairy tale ending to me. Oh, Ascot is my home, and uh, pretty emotional, to be honest with you. But, but, but happy, happy. We love you, Frankie. Well done. And Mike very much channeling the feeling at Ascot yesterday in the aftermath of the Kipco British Champion Stakes, won by King of Steel and Frankie de Tori. We must not forget what a job Roger Varian has done since taking this horse over, because it's not been completely straightforward, but the horse has not really missed a beat in terms of delivering every time he's turned up on the race course. And Roger is with us now. Roger, good morning. Good morning, Nick. 
What a special day that was yesterday. How did it feel for you just to be a part of it and a, an integral part of it as well? Yeah, it was very special. Um, it was a bit surreal. It was just a, a moment that happened. And, um, you know, to see a to see an atmosphere like that on a British race course um, and play a small part in it was, was really amazing. And have you had a, a chance really to, to analyse what happened in the race and how it all came together for the horse? Um, I think so, yeah. I've watched it plenty of times. I actually haven't had a proper debrief with Frankie yet. Had a few hugs, <laughs> had a few hugs but not a debrief. Um, but I thought, uh, you know, I thought, um, I thought we were in trouble, you know, for uh, the first half of a race. Nothing was really making up ground or, or coming off the pace. And, of course, we left, uh, left everything to Frankie. But I don't think even Frankie um, thought he'd be, you know, last going into Swinney Bottom. And, um, you know, he gave him a beautiful ride and kept him balanced and gave him a chance to find his feet. And, you know, he came home very strong where it mattered. So, you know, I'll call Frankie today and have a proper catch up with him and get his thoughts on how, how the race uh, really went for him. Yeah, let, let us know when you've got hold of him, Roger, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> might, be, it might be a while, Nick. It, it might be a little while. I think he, he's probably still rolling. Um, he, what, one thing he was, and I got to talk to him a little bit last night, was extremely complimentary about the horse as a as a character saying he was a very sweet horse a very kind horse who just needed a little bit of confidence is that what you found training him yeah a hundred percent he's um he's really a delight to train not just because he's very good but he's got uh, a great temperament and i thought that was on show yesterday you know there was a lot of buzz and noise um as a horse left the paddock and you know he had to keep himself together and after the race, you know, with all the all what was going on, you know, he was really just uh, just behaving like a very good horse with a very calm personality. And um, you know, he's like that. He gets to the races. He doesn't waste any excess energy. No nervous energy escapes from him. And he's the you know he's really the ultimate professional as a racehorse. Uh, Maddie and, and Richard and I were talking a little earlier on about the, the stalls. Is are, are the stalls an issue because he's so big? I, I don't think the stalls are a big issue, but they obviously, you know, his first intended run this year was at York in the Dante Stakes, and he was probably just a little fresh on the day, and he went in, you know, he'd never worried about going in the stalls, but he went in and he reared up, and he's such a big horse, he got a one or both of his, uh, you know, front paws over the front of the gate, and he was withdrawn from running, so, you know, straight away then, we, we you know, we, we realised we had an issue to work on, Um Craig Witherford and his team, you know, in fairness, have done a, a, a brilliant job. He's never been a big problem. He's never been frightened of his stalls. You could say he's perhaps, because of his size, a touch claustrophobic. And um, we've always been cautious on race day. I think he's only had the five runs. And, you know, he's always sort of gone in fairly late. He goes in with a blindfold on. Um, he hasn't looked like doing anything wrong at the stalls since that day at York in May. But, you know, I think we'll always uh, be protective of, of that part of proceedings and it's gone very well since so I'm sure you know in his uh, future races Craig Witherford's going to be on hand when we need him. Now it won't surprise you to know that both owner and rider seem quite keen on on Project California for King of Steel. How does the trainer feel? Well I think we need to um, take stock and see how the horse is and that you know that's the obvious thing to say. You know, I'm, I haven't seen him yet. I know he's perfectly fine this morning. He's sound, clean limb, jogged up well, ate all his grub. So he appears to have come out of a race physically um, in good shape. But, uh, you know, he would have had a hard race yesterday, and we can't uh, ignore that. And, you know, we just have to see how he is over the next uh, week. I haven't spoken to Kia this morning. I know that he's very keen on the Breeders' Cup anyway. In general, you know, if he could get a, a good horse there, then, of course, he'd want to be there. But in fairness to Kia, he's been very good all year. And he's always said to me, only run the horse when you're 100% happy. And if you're not, we don't go. And I'm sure that would be the same regarding California in a couple of weeks' time. But you're not completely... It doesn't, it doesn't, you, don't, you don't think of the idea and think, oh, God, I can't do that. Well, I just think it's too early to say yes or no, Nick. And I, yeah. you know, we we can make fools of ourselves writing ideas off, and then a week later changing our minds. You know, 
horses are, are you know funny creatures really and um you know we need to give uh give a few days just to see what messages the horse is given to us and um you know so i'm not going to take it off the table here now and this morning and uh, we'll just see how he is good morning roger well done yesterday it's, it's richard Hodges. i'm just interested frankie said he sort of almost won despite the ground i'm just interested in what maybe you feel after various trips and various grounds if you could pick the conditions what you would choose for him yeah, I really wasn't sure going into yesterday's race how he'd cope with that very testing ground, um, and I would agree with Frankie. He didn't look—he didn't look like he handled it at all. I thought uh, he broke on terms, but he—he he was sort of pitching a little bit going down the hill into Swinley Bottom, and you know, he, as I say, up until about halfway, I thought, "Oh God, we're really not going well here," and he never looked that comfortable. And um, credit to the horse, he found a way to win, but. Uh, He's a very good moving horse. He's a very agile horse. I remember going into Epsom thinking, cool, this might be a bit quick for him. And I was amazed, A, how, how well he handled the track and the undulations, and, um, but also how well he came out of a race. A lot of horses come, come out of Epsom, you know, a, a little sore, and he, he was the opposite, you know. So he's, he's a very agile horse, a very elastic horse. I should think he'd cope with most ground. I'd, I'd not fear fast ground, good to firm, good ground. You know, anything good to soft, soft, you'd be fine. I think yesterday's conditions were tough on all horses, and especially it looked like King of Steel was struggling a little bit under, you know, on those underfoot conditions. Should we have a look at the QE2 yesterday? Because if you're talking about a performance of shock and awe, it was, uh, it was big rock for Christopher Head and Aurelien Lemaitre. Lots of themes to explore here. Uh, not least the resurgence of France as a major force on the international stage. But this horse, I said Richard yesterday, he set off like a bat out of hell and he never stopped. No, he didn't. And, you know, it can be really difficult to make ground on soft ground if you give a leader track advantage. But that is all dependent on the pace that they go. And clearly most of the riders felt that Aurelion was doing plenty out in front mm. because his race-winning advantage, or the margin by which he ends up winning the race, is established over the majority of his rivals very early on in the contest. Most of the big guns are clustered midfield or further back. I know, Maddy, you want to point out Paddington probably at this stage just being a bit keen. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and he looked to me physically like he'd improved, actually, before this race, really filled out. So um, it would be a shame if we don't get to see him for another another year. But, yeah, I think he lost his race early on. Nashua, you can see Holly's just shoving away here. I think it's probably just one race too many on testing ground for her. But I don't really like this narrative that some people buy into of, oh, he was out front and that's the only reason why he won and all the other jockeys were left sleeping. I just thought this was an awesome no. performance. Yeah, no, I don't think they were left sleeping. I do think that they he was on a four-by-four four and the rest of them were in he clearly know, potentially this rather ground. classier models. Yeah. The ability to handle that ground and sustain it. To hear a fair play as, as, got, as the only one to have abbreviated that sort of gap until Factor Cheval, who was ridden to pick up the pieces, yeah. comes through and mugs Tahira, who was second best on the day. But look, this is... The question's going to be, and Nick, you'll know the form even better than me, the overseas side of things, is to whether this ground is absolutely crucial to a performance like that, being so dominating. I mean, they've got form on faster ground, mm. but not the extent of leaving horses like Tahira, Paddington, um, you might say Caldeans actually dining out on a very weak classic, but, you know, in their wake by that degree dominant wasn't it yeah and he's he's had quite a busy season as well and yeah. the one thing we've seen of, of Christopher Head this year he's not trying to run him is he <laughs> no he um, likes to run him we like that very ambitious um and also I'd say probably stepping back down to a mile he looks a real miler um son of Rocker Gibraltar of course one yeah. of his I think last um which is remarkable really it's probably his best horse in his last yeah. crop isn't he or yeah. his, you know one of his um, but I think the the testing mile that's another thing that played into his his strengths. Obviously beaten in the in the Breeders Jockey Club by Ace Impact form that's worked out really well. Where he looked like he won the race for all money and then just got mowed down by an absolute champion late on. But very very classy horse. And again, hopefully we're going to see him next year. Ace Impact was a good horse, wasn't he? Yeah, that's and that's, and, and that's nice <laughs> in a way. A but you're also left with that taste in your mouth of, of just wishing, aren't you? And this is still the problem with the three year olds. And it's so unfortunate that. 
those older horses by and large that have been left in training and we'll come on to a couple a little bit later on they flickered but certainly in the case of desert crown and ad ar mm. it hasn't been a commercial decision that has paid off and so the, the finance, the boring accountant in me, which but, is still there, wants you well, to retire them. But really isn't the Daney the absolute Yes, that would example be an even better that. example of that, yes. Insofar as that he ended up last year as a, you know, oh, God, what's he going to do it for? Nothing was the answer. And, of course, his commercial value is significantly less than what it was 12 months ago. And I think it's see, it's see the stars out of an Argamer on the dam side of, yeah. you know, which is unusual. I used to see the stars in deep ground. That's not something you would normally associate and of course, the Aga Khan studs, you've, you've seen Tahira get beat by one that was one of your own in terms mm. of the damn side. So maybe it wasn't all bad, but at the same time, yeah. So. Christopher Head, uh, the scion of just an extraordinary dynasty, and what an impression he's making this season. Blue Rose Sen, Ramatuel, and now this horse, Big Rock, winning the QE2, which had been his target from a long way out. This is what he had to say to Mike yesterday. That colt deserved that win, didn't he? It was a sensational performance today. Yeah, it was a bunch of second place throughout all the season. And of course, we can't wait to see him really in that kind of ground. And this strategy of going in front and all, and he really coped with it. Yeah. He just always looked comfortable, always in control. Always, always. And he looks dominant and he loves to do it. So pretty much nobody go against it. So yeah, he's a very, very nice colt. And and we're probably going to see him for next season too. He's been on the go a long time now, Christopher, hasn't he? You've had, you had him in good form in the spring. Is that it for the season now? You wouldn't bring him back for nothing else to aim for? No, that's it for the season, and we will see him for the next one. So what do you think about his trip? I mean, obviously a mile on this sort of ground really suits him. We saw at Chantilly in May when he beat Horizon Doré by an easy five lengths over nine furlongs. Would you go back up to a mile and a quarter again, like in the French Derby? I don't think so. I think we really have the, the limit of what he's capable of doing. He's really a mile horse doing that kind of thing right now, today. So I think we're going to stay on to something that actually works. Okay. But does he need that deep ground to, to perform to that level? Can he, can he be more effective on, a, on quicker ground? He's doing fine on too good ground, but he's even better into that kind of ground. So we'll see. It's a proud moment for you. It's a really important moment for the breeder, and I'm very happy with his confidence. And, uh, and of course, I hope we will have plenty of more winning like this. Yeah, indeed. You've done so well with those colours this year, with the Blue Rose Sand as well. Exactly. Yaguada yeah, yeah. Centurion, the Spanish stroke Cuban connection, teaming up with the French to win here at Ascot. Yes, exactly. It's, it's really an honour to win today in Ascot because I've been planning and dreaming of that moment all my life and today it's very special. Well done. Thank you very much. It wasn't all about Frankie de Torre yesterday, far from it. There were some terrific results throughout Champions Day. And a, a result that really warmed the heart was the victory of Art Power in the British Champions Sprint. I was going to say it's an overdue Group 1 success for him. It was certainly a richly deserved one. He was 40-1 to 1 yesterday. But his career has been um, characterised by high-level success throughout. And it was a first Group 1 win also for, for David Allen. And uh, no, domestic Group 1 win for, for David Allen, I should, I should correct myself, who is, is with us now. David, good morning. Good morning. Um, a special day for, for all of us, a, a very special day for you. But I was very struck talking to Timisby a few weeks ago about what this horse meant to so many people who've been associated with him. Just try and give me an indication as to, as to what he's been for you. Well, I think when he, obviously when he was younger, we all thought he'd be a Group 1 winner by the time he was probably four-year-old. So it's one of the things that never really happened. So it was a bit, you know, you're just wondering, is it ever going to happen? And obviously I rode him quite a bit. And then D'Souza had the job with uh, King Power. So I missed him uh, when he won at Royal Ascot. But we all knew he was a good horse and he was capable. But... It just seemed to take a long time for it to all click together. And sort of stables need horses like that that just keep coming back and back and back. And I know you're saying, you know, it's taken a long time for, for him to win a Group 1, but he's turned up in a lot of places and delivered a lot of times. Yeah, well, obviously he got stuck with the, the Curatag, didn't he, as a, a specialist there and, and basically only there. But I, I just think the track suiting there and, and generally the ground's always on the soft side, so it's just these ideal conditions most of the time he goes there and we got it again yesterday. 
So talk to me about yesterday and the decision that you made when he bounced out and you separated yourself from the field. How premeditated was that? Uh, we sort of knew we didn't want, like we didn't mind being drawn on the wing. We were happy. I'd watched plenty of replays when the ground had been softer, so and I was happy to just go on my own. You know that side a little bit, and I thought it'd just be easy to keep him relaxed without any company around me because he does race a little bit aggressive, you know, if anything's around him. But he's sort of relaxed, nice, and um, sort of decide then when I was when I wanted to go and try and win the race rather than get my hand caught, you know. So were you surprised that you didn't have a bit more company? Not really, because I did jump the gates very quick and, and then that ground, you know, nobody's going to rush after you so early and, and that ground. So when he jumped out well and he was travelling so strong, I was, I was actually delighted that nobody was near me more than anything. And then the, the sort of surprise, if you like, Frankie Dottori on a strong stayer at the trip. Yeah, has... especially also beat him, you know, in the race last year, I beat him quite a long way, so... When he came to me, I thought, well, we're going to be second. <laughs> but um, he didn't have to begin at the finish. It was unreal how much he fought that and um, how much he was full of running after the line as well. He, he took a bit of pulling up as well. And talking to, to Tim and, and, and people in the yard going into the race, did you get any indication that he was ready to, to throw in a, a massive effort? Well, we, we obviously we'd seen him do it at the Curra, and then um, when I rode him in France, I think that took quite a lot out of him, so... I'll be honest with you, he's probably the least confident we went into that race and the best result we've had. So, you know, they, they, they do surprise you most of the time. But Tim did tell me in the paddock, he said he's put weight back on and he's absolutely bouncing. So I'm always quite confident when I ride him because he generally runs his race all the time. Uh, the jockey of the runner-up was very complimentary of your ride afterwards. And I, I think he, he reserves those compliments for rare occasions. Ah, well, he's had, he's had plenty of big days at, um, at Ascot and... Um, Unfortunately, I might have ruined the show for a lot of the punters because they would have had him in a, a lot of accumulators, but that was a, the least thing on my mind. But it, it's awesome to get um, you know, someone like Frankie saying, you know, you've done well on the, on the big day. So, yeah, it's uh, very good. Very happy I was. And, and I'm, I would imagine that the drive back last night went, went by pretty swiftly. For you and, and, and as, a, as a staging post in your career, what did yesterday mean? Oh, it was awesome. It's, um, one of the things I, I was actually starting to wonder if it was ever going to happen. Because I've had a few, not not loads of riding group ones, but a few where I thought they could run a bit better than they did. But he's, um, he's always run well at power, and, and to finally get him to win, one, especially for the East B Yard, was, was absolutely cost. I was absolutely delighted. Um, no headgear required for my next guest, the Chief Executive of the British Champions Series, who masterminded yesterday's day at Ascot, Rod Street. Rod, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? Um, how have you pulled up this morning? Quite tired. It's a big build-up to Kipco British Champions Day, but um, and, and emotionally draining after all that we saw yesterday. But really, really pleased, and look, pleased, and, and pleased on lots of levels as well, Nick. Not not just about the uh, the finale for the big man. And we have um, spoken relatively little thus far today about the weather, which, considering it was quite grim for most of the afternoon, nobody seems to have noticed. Yeah, we were we, we were we were quite lucky in the end on the day in 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 many ways. When when gates opened, the the sun was still shining, and, and we didn't really get any showers until we we crowned our our champion jockey and champion apprentice, and then spits and spots during the, the day but you know the build-up during the week with Storm Babette wreaking havoc in other places I, I feel we got off relatively lightly Nick. This is not an easy climate to get um, a full house a packed house to try and sell big race days um, I was hearing midway through yesterday afternoon that the crowd number was pretty good can you can you put some meat on the bones? Yeah we were over 30,000 but I think the the, the final tally was 30,300 and something, which is, I think, our, our second biggest day since Frankel's departure in 2012. And we've put a lot of effort this year into promoting the day. It's been very difficult post-COVID, and you know that lots of courses have, have struggled. But we did a lot of work with our student initiatives and our Club 26, a lot with communities and children, because um, it's about the future. It's about developing the future fan. And, and so we had something like at least 4,000 people under 26 on site yesterday in their own zone as well with 
jockey masterclasses and total performance data telling them about how sectional timing works and you know putting a little bit of science behind the sport a separate area where we had over a thousand children again seeing a, a jockey masterclass and 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 playing with uh, vr headsets and again it was you know our big fan activation zone and this is about racing you know wanting to be very hooky with this young audience to get them closer we have obviously all of the amazing action that takes place on the course and some very special moments from Frankie yesterday but we've got an eye on the future and wanting fans to engage and so that really encouraged us that we had this amazing crowd that we hope we told a lot of stories to. In terms of just gauging the atmosphere as well it was it was quite special after the champion stakes and not one you would often witness at, at, at a horse racing event um, to what extent did did that put a song in your heart? It's fantastic. You know, you have to you have to create the the venue and the occasions for these moments. And I think Ascot invariably creates a, a great theatre when these moments occur. And and uh, you know, a few people rather casually said to me, "It's like you only you only kind of get this atmosphere at a jumps meeting." You know, they had that touch of of Cheltenham about it. It was it was magnificent. I I, I, I know Frankie was bemused himself by what had just happened in the the champion stakes it was it was sensational there'd been a lot of build-up to it um and um he got it right didn't he what what a showman he is um and um yeah i mean you you couldn't ask for anything more in funnily enough nick on the day such you know such was the the, the anxiety about you know getting one more story out of frankie de Tori. We thought it was job done in the first race with Trawlerman. It's like, great, he's got he's he's won a big race on the day, all good, everyone's a winner. And yet he just had something more, didn't he? Quite quite something. But um, amazing scenes. I, I imagine all attendees on the race course yesterday just had the most stunning of of, of occasions. Morning, Rod. Um I guess it, it seems like I'm going to pour cold water on it a little bit, but how much of a challenge do you think it's going to be to market racing to that wider audience without Frankie? Oh, I think you have to pull together a combination of, 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 of other jockeys and activities to do that. There, there's no point pretending that you can replace him. He's a one-off and he's been a showman for over three decades. So I think we just have to be realistic about that. But if you were down in any of the activation zones yesterday and you saw the you know, incredibly engaging um, um, uh, Holly Doyle and the always articulate Asheen Murphy explaining what they do and, and, and what happens when they ride horses to, you know, rapt audiences of children and, and, and also students, we just have to use all of all of these things to to tell our stories in different ways that, you know, I think it's a case of us being you know, the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. Let's remember yesterday that Billy Lachlan, crowned champion apprentice, a year ago hadn't ridden his first winner. Amazing. You, you walk onto Ascot and he's he's 10 metres high on the grandstand celebrating this just 17-year-old. So we've got assets, we've got different personalities. You can't make them what Frankie is, but you can use them in different ways and, 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 and crucially in ways that, you know, beyond all, all of the, you know, the very top level top of funnel excitement and getting people in, involved in the sport that way with you know real authentic storytelling about what they do and I, I think the sport could still yet do a lot more to market its athletes more effectively because there's just so much storytelling let's not forget as well you know those other very um human angles with um the the, the story with William Buick and his son Tom, Thomas which I think is going to be one of our most watched pieces yeah. of social media content last week so we we've got lots of ways to tell our stories and and we need to be realistic we're going to have to do them in some different and um inventive ways Steve Cawthon, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame, becomes the first person to be in the Hall of Fame in America and in the UK. That, of course, could uh, be the fate of Frankie Dottori in years to come. Who knows? What we weren't able to do yesterday officially was to crown the champion trainer or trainers, but it seems as though the break that John and Thady Gosden have on Aidan O'Brien is sufficient. And John Gosden is with us now. I'm not allowed to crown you and Thady yet, am I? 
It's got to wait till December the 31st. Eve. Do you want to come to the party? Aiden, Aiden's got <laughs> Aiden's got six in at Pontefract on Monday. I noticed. So. Yeah, I have. I remember he got close uh, about three years ago. He sent a van load over to Chelmsford in November, and I thought, mm. well, this is going on a bit. But actually, all joking aside, it does go to show that this is something that he's taken quite seriously. You know, it. I know you're not going to sacrifice good horses on the altar of trainers' championships, but it is something that means something to you. No, we had a little bit of that choice yesterday with Master Daff, because mm. you and I walked the course mm. with Angus Gold, and interestingly enough, it, it walked and the stick a lot better, but when I went out there after the first race and saw how they turned it over, when you start putting a horse into it, a full gallop, it was a way softer and looser than we thought. So uh, you bowled me a complete googly yesterday because having walked the course with you and Angus Gold, I thought, well, this horse is going to run, um, no doubt, because you were saying, yeah, it's good ground, quite like it, whatever. So what happened between the time I left you alone and the time that the horse was pulled out? Well, the walking the course is one thing. Yeah. But then you want to go and see when the horses have been over the first time, which I did, mm. down the back, and then talk to the jockeys coming in. And you immediately get a, a real feel for it. And the jockeys were clear what it was. I mean, one said heavy. Another guy said horrible. Someone else said loose. One said deep. Frankie said it was very soft and, and, and beautiful, was his word. So, but he was very happy. He'd won the race. But no, it, it, it wouldn't have been the, the ground to run that horse on, trainer's title or not. It was a tough decision not to run him. But it's easy because you can go to California where normally you can recommend what the ground, know what the ground will be. Mm. Good to firm, firm. Uh, and you had to make the same decision with Inspiral earlier in the week as, <coughs> as well. I guess that was an easier one. Well, having seen a gr group one mile of that race finishing slightly like strung out like the washing there, I'm very glad we didn't even <coughs> consider putting her in the race. Mm. What did you make of, of Big Rock <coughs> yesterday? It was a, it was a pretty, pretty extraordinary performance, wasn't it? I think he'd, he'd, he'd been on good to soft ground, good ground. I think he'd have beaten that field. The style, the pace he went, and the fact that he could sustain it for so long. He had all of those horses stone cold with three furlongs to run. Quite an achievement. It, it was a, a, a bizarre performance, an extraordinary one and a dominant one and uh, a very important day for Aurelia Lemaitre as, we as we were saying earlier on. If you had run in spiral in that race, do you think she would have just finished out with the washing and just not given a well, running at all? I think she'd have been with some of the others. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, uh, it was a phenomenal performance. She would have not liked the ground so we wouldn't have run her anyhow. So it's uh, we're playing with theories yeah. there. I thought that, that Tahira, she's mm. tiny, isn't she? She ran a blinder, but couldn't get near him. And I'm pleased for the jockey, because he got a bit of a ticking off after the moolah. Yeah, and he got a bit of a ticking off from all of us after the after the uh, Nassau stakes, didn't he? When Ryan Moore and Jim Crowley uh, delivered him some local Sussex knowledge. Well, if you think you're going to get up Ryan Moore's inner, you're not. You learned quickly there. Yeah, happily he got out and clear yesterday. Give me a word on Nashua yesterday. She hated the crown. Just, just, just couldn't, couldn't handle it at all. It. No, spinning her wheels on it. Yeah. Okay. And as far as the others are concerned, were you at all surprised that Trollerman won? No, he's been in the form of his life. He won his last two races in great order. I was surprised that he handled the ground so well. Obviously, you know, the ammo racing horse in front has gone hard. Frankie's cruised to it. Ryan is at work, and then I think the, the clever thing was that Frankie didn't throw everything at it straight away. They've got four to go, testing conditions, and it's a fascinating race that he actually managed to, that he let Ryan go by, collect it again, and suddenly saw the other horse faltering. He thought, I'm going to get him. So we were having a bit of a debate earlier on before you came in as to whether <laughs> Kiprios was a little bit of a monkey and pulled himself up in front or not. Well, I wouldn't ever talk derogatory fashion about anybody else's horse, but there was this point where he looked like he had it under control, but he, he wasn't then drawing away. And Frankie hadn't gone hard for Trollerman, and then he thought, right, bring him wide, don't let him go and look the other horse in the eye. It's something we did years ago with a horse observatory winning the QE2, mm. beating Giants. Kevin Causeway. Darley. Yeah, we didn't come too close to him. The plan was to come wide. Giants calls we never saw. It's in this case they were close enough, but it was a superb performance from, from horse and jockey. Um, do you think that's Frankie Dettori's last day in England? I'm quite clear. <coughs> We've been discussing this for three months, four months. Uh, and you, the plan of are you, are, you, are you bored with this conversation? <coughs> no, I'm not. It's just that Frankie and I have talked it through. It's, it's very clear that you can't stop Stone Cold, Cold Turkey. That is something that would not suit him in one way. There's that very interesting, Brian O'Driscoll, the yep. great centre for Ireland, yep. after the roar. 
you know, for an athlete, as it's pointed out, you don't die once, you die twice. Mm. Until Frankie and I discussed this, he actually took the quote and used it on, on, a, on a racing team, on a TV talk sport the next mm. day, actually. But the point is that if you've been completely committed every day into a, a training, fitness, riding horses, whatever, your rugby player, you are in a zone. And it's very hyped suddenly to stare at a vacuum. Mm. The other thing, Frankie, feeds on the crowd. You've had a very good example of that yesterday. But in the rugby game, you've got a cauldron around you, people scrambling, it lifts you. And suddenly, that's gone. That's why a lot of them collapse. Their, their mind just goes, and they have, they're awful people. They start hitting the bottle and everything else. So for any athlete to stop, you die then, mm. when you, ret you retire from there. And then you die when you die. That's the type. And I think for him, he couldn't face that. And so we talked about California, and that was planned from a long way out. He enjoyed his time there last yeah. year. Rented the house. He's got himself a place in Pasadena, Airbnb or whatever it is. And Catherine's got bored with the, the dark winters that we have here. I mean, so we, we, were all so in, we were all in sympathy <laughs> with this, yeah, to and be so honest. So it worked well. And it's very clear to me. I teased him. I said, I know what's going to happen. You're going to ride there. You're going to ride Kansas City. Do you ride all the Middle East, Bahrain, Qatar, yeah. Saudi, Dubai? That gets you to the end of March. You try and find the uh, Kentucky Derby horse. That takes you to May. Oh, funny thing. Well, Alaska's coming up. Mm. And I said, you and John Velasquez, who's a great friend of his, you'll be competing for rides at Alaska. But as a... See, the thing that surprised me, obviously... We know this because we, we we're talking about this on the show for the last God knows how many weeks. Nobody was particularly surprised that he's going to California. It was an like open secret, whatever, and you you busted him at Newmarket as well, which he was very cross well, about. Well, I, I, I teased him because yeah. he, he had let the cat out of the bag before that little fiesta that you took charge of last yes, night. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, so what the one thing that the one thing that surprised me was when he said, "I'm actually." relocating lock, stock and barrel, going to live in America and actually basically live out my riding days there for as long as they'll have me. So it's kind of an open-ended... Well, absolutely, because... Is you know, that, is, do you think that can work yes, really well? absolutely, because first of all, you've got to realise they're, they're only riding three, four days a week, mm. OK? You go there in the morning, breeze horses, beautiful weather, OK? Pleasant. You then... Get ponied to the start, so you don't have to canter a horse to the two-mile start at Newmarket with a Zarowicz or something. You're ponied to the start. Everything's done for you. You have your jockey agent. You might be riding in Florida. He does all your travel, everything. He's Ron Anderson's his name. Mm -hmm. He's a, yeah. He's a great friend of ours. And, and I can tell you that it's, it's a very nice life. There's no traveling. I mean, for these jockeys in this country, they're up and down, they're going everywhere. They're riding work, 5.36 in the morning, driving all day. They're not allowed saunas, which is wrong. So they're having to turn the heating on in the car with a bloody tracksuit on. And from my point of view, they have a very, very hard life here. Very draining physically and mentally. But actually, compared did, to the American jobs. Didn't you hit the didn't you hit the nail on the head earlier on when you talked about his need to be doing something and his need to be busy and not just to fall apart? Insofar as actually, ironically, given the fact that he's now fifty two or whatever he is, he's gonna be busier in terms of the amount of horses he rides than he is now, because now it's high days and holidays or whatever, and a few rides... It's a few not difficult. Ones, but I know it's not, but it's that he's actually getting more action, because he's quite happy over yeah, there but a long to ride six ago. or seven in a day, where he's yeah. not here, because he's, he's riding for 50 grand a pop there, and it's yeah. five grand a pop here. Exactly. Well, I would never have him doing that, you No, see. I know. Back in when he, he came to me, uh, and, and Rachel sorted out that he went to ride in the Japan Cup after the little hiccup in 93, and Barney Curley brought him round, and he rode f for us... Those three, four years as retained jockey, he was champion jockey, 230 winners, 220 winners. Unbelievable. But he came to me in May of the third year and he said, I'm worn out. And I said, right, this is the end of this. And mm. Finish off this year, be champion jockey. From then on, you just be very selective where and how you ride. And right now in, the, in what you call the twilight of his career, we've been very selective where mm. we go. But there's, a, a, balance. there's a balance, last isn't there? Year. There's a balance. But his fitness has been amazing this year. He's been in the zone, riding quite beautifully. And just turning up now for Santa Anita, for those meetings, flying down to Florida, maybe going back to New York, is going to suit him. And if you stopped him, I tell you what, he'd drive Catherine completely mad, poor girl. She'd have to have him locked in the garage or something. All right, can we stop talking about Frankie's story and talk about you for a minute? Does the same apply to a trainer? Do you die twice? Well, I, 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 I don't know. I don't thrive on, I don't need the adulation. 
I don't need the roar of I'm the crowd. I'm not talking about the adulation, I'm talking, but I'm talking know. about the action. Oh, I think uh, people enjoy being around horses, and I love working with Thady. It's great, and he's young, and they see things differently. And when you've done something this way all your life, and they suddenly come up with a suggestion, you think, oh, I never thought of it from that angle. So he's sharpened me up a lot, I mm. can tell you. I enjoy working with him. Whether I stay on the license for a long time or not, it's an entirely different matter. The funny one is Mark Johnson. He said, you know, I've come off the license, and Charlie's working me harder than I've ever worked. Mm. So I think from that point of view, as long as you're there with the horses in the morning, it doesn't matter whether you're on the license or not. It's interesting you mention them, because I get the feeling that you know, Mark's a strong personality. He's an individual thinker. He's been a great innovator in the game. I speak to him now. I see a guy who appears to be quite relaxed, allowing Charlie to kind of take the responsibility and be told, pretty much told, told what to no. do. Um, I, 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 uh, would that be the same? Would you I be happy to do that? I suppose so. I mean, they, they work very, in, very much in harmony. I mean, Charlie's obviously older. He's 32 mm. and a qualified vet and everything else. But we'll just work it along as we please. It's our decision how we do it. But uh, right now, I, I, I love being around the horses. I'm not going to change that. And I, don't, I think Rachel will have, have to have to lock me in the garage <laughs> if there was nothing else to do. On a personal level, um, how, how satisfying is it to be able to have a family member on the <coughs> licence with you? Was there a time at Clarehaven when you thought, well, I don't think... I've got anyone to hand this business to. No, I think it's fantastic that he wanted to do it, but it's not easy for any young trainer now because he said he wanted to do it. I said, look me in the eyes. This is your idea, not my idea. There's mm. no sense of obligation. He said, no, I really want to do it. I said, right, that's great. Now the bad news. I'm 70. Most of my clients are older than me, and this is a big issue. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do? You work hard mm. and find people who want to work horses. It, is, it's not is, easy. And is it working? Oh, God, it's working at the moment, but it's the same for any young trainer in the country. It's not an easy time to get going. We don't want to get negative about it, but uh, it's not like the economy is buoyant. It's, uh, you know, racehorse is a luxury item, so it's not necessarily the first thing on, on people's expenditure list. It get, gets, gets down the list. Um, have you been pleasantly surprised by anything in terms of incoming owners to the yard? Has money come from new places or no, not think, really? You know, or are I we think, mining the same scene? I think no. I think obviously the Middle East is important. International ownership here is important. And I think if we, if we lose that, then I, well, we'll see the quality of our racing will drop off very mm. fast. There's no doubt about that. Fortunately, we had the export markets, America, Australia, Hong Kong, we know all of that. But that's exporting your horses. How do, you, how do you regenerate the business? And these are big issues and probably not something I want to get into a political debate on right now. I'm delighted to welcome back to the programme Brian Toomey. Brian has been a, a friend of this show since its inception. Ten years ago, uh, he nearly lost his life in a horrific fall at Perth. He got himself back and got himself back riding and then got into a, a training yard and has held an ambition since to hold a trainer's license. And it looked at an ambition that for many years was going to be thwarted, but has now come uh, to fruition um, and couldn't be more pleased for you. It's been a long journey. Um, how do you feel now on the cusp of this new chapter? Yeah, very excited. Um, it has been a very long journey, but uh, hopefully that will all play into my strengths. OK, so what has changed since you were last here? Because when you were last here, you were doing well, you were riding out, you wanted to train, but it actually didn't really look terribly likely. No, it didn't. Um, I, I'd, I'd viewed a few yards and I always, as I said, I always had that ambition. Um, and then a yard came up uh, in Chalfont St Giles, mm -hmm. um, where Martin Bosley trained from. And I went and seen it and I was totally blown away by it. And that's a goal I've been chasing ever since. And what about the process of being granted a licence as well by the BHA? Yeah, I sat my trainer's course. I did my trainer's course a good few years ago and obviously did my level three diplomas, etc. cetera. Uh, I was assistant trainer to Dr. Richard Newland and I've picked up, um, I've, I've worked for some very good trainers and I've picked up as much as I can. And um, yeah, hopefully I can take it all with me. It always struck me back then, even from the early days when you were recovering, and you, you've admitted this before, that you were trying to run before you could walk, and that you were impatient for, you know, for your body to be in full working order, but also to get on with the rest of your career. Has, have you learnt that patience now? Yeah, I have, and um, 
I was younger then, so maybe I'll blame my youth. But uh, I was, yeah, back when, back then, you're trying to rush everything. You think that, like, Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, and it's, it's, it takes a long time, especially, like, when you weren't born in, I wasn't born into it. Mm. Um, I wasn't, I don't come from a racing background. Um, I was brought up milking cows, so horses were the least of, were the fr I was furthest away from horses. But, um, yeah, as I said, I've, um, I've met some great people and, I've hopefully I can pick up the support going forward and make a go of it. And you've channeled your energy more positively now. Yeah, I think I have, and I have. Yeah, I've put everything I can into it. Um, it's 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 been a long time coming. Okay, so when you set up, um, what is the yard going to look like in terms of amount of horses, the sort of horses you'll be training, who you'll be training for? Well, listen, I'm not in a position to turn down horses, um, but. I would like to train, listen, I would like to train a string of flat horses, dual purpose horses, um, a few nice hurdlers maybe, um, but it's obviously uh, the last day of the season yesterday, it's obviously a tricky time of mm. year, um, but I'll be at the sales all week next week and hopefully I could pick up a few horses that are ready to go to war with and um, get a few Results do the talk, and then results are going to do the talk, and then so I need to get figures. Or I need to get um, I need to get winners on the board. It's not an easy time to start training horses, uh, and you say, you know, you grew up milking cows, and you didn't have a background in the sport, but you're a you're a smart guy, and you're a resilient guy. There's plenty of other things you could have done, but train horses. Why this? Yeah, as I said, it's it's a passion. It's it's something I couldn't get away from. I mean, I got back racing. After losing consciousness, was on seven, over seven hundred and thirty days later, or something like that. And it, listen, it was a success getting back in the saddle. I was advised by many people how dangerous it was, and and I'm sorry I didn't take that advice at the time. I'm, but it was just a goal I wanted to achieve, and and it was, as I said, it was something I achieved, and I was I was proud of that. Um, but I'm it's interesting this because you you say you're sorry you didn't take the advice at the time, but is it a bit sorry not sorry, as in you had to prove to yourself you could do it, and then that has that then had a positive impact on the rest of your life. I genuinely believe so, but I had—I mean, I won't mention any names—but I had some top people, big people within the industry, and telling me like, "Brian, your family have been true enough. You've been true enough." I just had—it wasn't that I had something to prove. It's just I, I just I just it was all like all I wanted to do, and I couldn't believe I got back. I mean, to get back as a jockey. You have to be at no greater risk, risk than everyone else, but um, I mean I'm very headstrong, titanium. Um, <laughs> but as said, it's um, yeah, I, I got there. Um, do you feel good now? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I cannot wait to start. I mean, I can't wait to invite people down to my yard. It's 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 a beautiful it's, it's in a beautiful part of the country in Chalfont St Giles it's very picturesque it's it's um it's stunning so i can't wait to invite people down and hopefully i can pick up the support and get the opportunity to to train for them and, and prove that i can do the job that i'm not just a miracle jockey who came back from from what i came back from mm -hmm. i, I want to prove that i am very determined and i'll put everything i can into it and have you got a, a good team of people? I mean, we've been speaking for much of the last hour about you know the importance of having good people around you. Yes, I do have good people around me. I mean, people have been incredible to me throughout my career, throughout my injury, etc. And listen, people people have a lot of goodwill. People want to see you doing well, and people have been offering all types of help to me. And there's there's too many people to point out, but I I'm very lucky that I have such nice people around mm. me. But in terms of setting up a team. To move forward, and to you know, what what will your kind of staffing situation look like? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm start. You're starting. I'm starting out from scratch. So I'm starting out from nothing. So um, you'll be you'll be running out six lots a day. Oh yeah, I mean, I can barely afford to pay myself a wage at the minute. But uh, yeah, I will have staff, and I mean, the yard is owned by by a lovely family, the Carey family. They're they're they've been very supportive to me, and they're excited for um, a bit of life to be back in the yard as well. What did you learn off Richard Newland? Too much to mention. Um, he was. Um, He's a fascinating man. Fascinating interesting man. Trainer. Very interesting. But listen, keeps it very simple. Does the does the does the simple things right? Um, feeds his horses well. They they've got a good system, a good routine, and 
just keeps it very simple. And yeah, I like his approach to it with the the horses he buys. He always maps out a plan for them. Mm. I like that. I think it's that's that's very important. Um, so yeah, that's. Um, but there's been, as I said, there's been other trainers that have been incredible to me. Kevin Ryan, Clive Cox, they've been very, very good. John Franken's been a big friend. Yeah, he? I get on with John. John's, John's always someone I can turn to, and John, John will be very helpful to me. Uh, and it's always been there as well, right from the, the word go. Oh yeah, John is. I said I've I've been friendly with John for for many many years, and um, yeah, I always call up when I need his advice and we need to chat about things. We need to chat about anything. John's there. Uh, this is a uh, a very determined guy, <laughs> Richard. Um, but I, I, I take Brian's point. He doesn't want to be known as the the miracle jockey for the rest of his no, life. That probably is the is the tag, isn't it? Google straight up, you know, and leaving that behind is probably pretty challenging. Um, but your resilience speaks volumes. Um, what sell yourself in thirty seconds? For those outside, because it is difficult. It is a competitive market, and it's sort of you know to leave that behind. What can you offer an owner? Yeah, listen. I just hope my 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 passion shines through, my determination. Um, I I I want I want to I want it to be a success. I mean, I'm I'm I put everything I can into it. Mm. I think that's all you can really ask, isn't it? And you know, there's a point about staff and structure. It, it, they're new challenges. Just jock, being jockey is quite individual in that sort of sense, and now you're trying to formulate a team. It is, and I'm, I mean, it's probably in hindsight, it's probably a good thing it didn't happen overnight because I've had all this time to to think about it, to to learn from people. I mean, I've done I've done so many courses. I mean, I've qualified to do a lot of other things, but as I said, it's it's all. It's all pointing in the direction of becoming a trainer. That's what I say. I know through my work with Jets that you've mm. explored many, many avenues, and it's nice to see you settled and focused. That this yeah. is now, you know, where you want to go forward. It is my goal, isn't it? It's not. It's not going to be easy, and obviously, you have to pick up the support, and you have to pick up. You have to pick up. Um, I'd say a, a team of people behind you, mm. but that's that's where all my energy is channeled. When is going to be the first B two B runner? Um, I don't know. The sales are this week. I did remember you a few years back saying you were going to have a horse in training with me, Nick. I did I? Yes, yeah, so it was did about I? four years ago, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I, I, um, no, um, I don't, listen, it will be hopefully within the next month.